This, uh, this series is called The Invasion of Peace, and it really is about uh, God bringing shalom to this world. And uh, shalom doesn't play out quite as well as peace, but everybody knows what peace is. Uh, people in a lot of the Middle Eastern countries, they still will say shalom um, and so on in terms of saying goodbye and hello. But uh, it's really, shalom is really about um, everything coming together. If you can imagine dropping a glass on the floor, on a cement floor, and then all of the pieces coming back together again and being whole, that's what God is doing, and that's what he intended to do through Jesus when he sent his son, is bringing everything back together again, and he uses lots of ways to do that. And, of course, you're going to see that in some of the, uh, in some of the messages that we talk about. Tonight, I want to talk about chaos in your home. Peace when there's chaos in your home. Uh, another one is next week we're going to talk about, you know, Peace when, you know, the, the leaders in the world are evil or crazy or both, uh, because we all have seen that in the world system we live in. And, and the leaders do not determine whether or not there's peace. God does that, and he either takes them, uh, sets them up, or he takes them down again. Um, the next uh, series that we're going to be doing, or next message in this whole series, is finding peace when you follow a star and you find a barn, which is, of course, what happened to the Magi. And it's a great story in terms of uh, how they worked and, and what was actually behind them actually discovering Jesus. So this is going to be the whole thing. And then, of course, Christmas Eve, we're going to be talking about how uh, there can be peace even when there's chaos in just about every area of your life, when bad things are happening, which is, of course, kind of the culmination of Jesus. Good things were happening and bad things were happening too and that didn't stop God and what he was trying to do. And We're going to do some filming on different locations. I think it's going to be fun. We've been preparing for that. Dan has been doing a lot of work in terms of we've got a choir and it's, it's just going to be a great evening. So if you want to uh, think about this and invite your family and then maybe send it off to your friends, that'd be great. But tonight I want to talk about chaos in your home. Uh, just about every family that I'm aware of has somebody who, when they come to a Christmas gathering, a holiday gathering, you know, um, sometimes it's permanently, sometimes it's just for a season or two, they kind of bring chaos to the table. And uh, I'm sure that, you know, my dad was the one in our family, in his family, that did that. You know, when he hit his teens, like everything kind of came unraveled. He ran away, took a train down to Virginia and, and ran away from home. Um, when he dropped out of school, worked at a hamburger joint for a while, and so on. Then he worked to U.S. Steel as a welder, and then he joined the Navy when he was 17 years old. And when his aircraft carrier was hit by a kamikaze plane, he was only 18 years old, blew up his ship, and, and really came close to losing his life. And because of that experience, when he got home from the war, his favorite friend was alcohol. He got drunk all the time, and he couldn't stop. Every family has one child, I think, where the parents get on their knees and they cry and beg God to intervene. And he was that child. But in all this chaos, you see, God, shalom, was at work and drawing him to Jesus. And Jesus changed his life and freed him from this stuff. If you were to talk to people who knew my dad, you know, after this, they would say he was probably one of the kindest, gentlest, most generous p persons that they, that they knew. And it was, it was due to the peace that Jesus brought to the trouble and the rebellion that he was a part of. So every family has somebody who brings chaos to the table. Now, in your family, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but you may have been that person. <laughs> 
You brought chaos to your table. You know? And you know that somebody's bringing chaos to your table because when they walk into the room and they start the conversation, you know, everything tenses up. It's like everybody's eggshelling, trying not to cause some kind of an eruption going on. Because you think, what are they going to pull this year? Like, what's it going to be? Okay? Now, here's what's fascinating. You know, sometimes this chaos comes, you know, with somebody and they just make a bunch of bad decisions and they keep making bad decisions and they are in chaos and they bring chaos to the table. Sometimes there's chaos because upheaval is a part of life, okay? We uh, moved from small town USA to city Canada here. We brought the whole family. That was an upheaval and if you ever want me to tell you about it, I'd be glad to do it. But sometimes the chaos is not created by any of these things. Sometimes it's created because the person has actually chosen to do what God asked them to do, and that creates chaos. And that's what you see in these stories here. Right now, we're in the middle of chaos, aren't we? It's all, we call it, you could call it COVID chaos because that's what it is. You hear about it every morning if you watch the news. You hear about it every night before you go to bed because they have a whole COVID channel to tell you how bad things are. And every, you know, you, I don't know if you've noticed this, but people are afraid, people are angry, people are frustrated, and we see this. And I, you, know, you just get to the point where I'm sick, I'm sick of hearing about who's angry now. I'm sick of hearing about you know, who won this election and who didn't. I'm sick of hearing about all this stuff you know, and how bad it's going to get. We need to stop it now. I mean, you probably feel that too. It's this chaos that's in our world, and it's very disruptive. So the story of Jesus actually is a story about God introducing chaos. And so here's kind of the theme that runs through this. Sometimes God allows chaos to bring peace, more specifically, shalom. Sometimes God allows chaos to bring peace. Hard to see sometimes. This uh, story, uh, the story of Jesus, and we're going to kind of take a romp through the story of Jesus' birth and so on, but it starts out with Zachariah and Elizabeth, and to understand them, you have to understand that they were faithful. They were the kind of people, they just faithfully did God's will every day, just kind of plodding along, you know. Zachariah, Worked at the temple. He'd inherited the job from his great, 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 great grandfather Aaron, who was Moses' brother. And so he works there in the temple, and it's it's an inherited job. So he works there, and so on. And the one thing that their faithfulness did not bring in their lives was an answer to the biggest prayer they had. They wanted an heir, and now it was too late. Probably in their early seventies, I'm guessing. So. Anyways, Zachariah's just kind of plodding along, da-doom, 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 doing his job. So he's in the temple, which was one of the wonders of the ancient world and so on, but had these massive stones, like, you know, 12 feet by 10 feet by 40 feet long, just massive stones. They had white marble all over the outside of the temple. It was so blazing, blazingly white that in the sunlight, they said you couldn't really look at it because it would blind you. But he didn't notice all that. Because he'd grown used to it, you know. So he's just plodding along. He'd been, you know, chosen by lot to serve in the temple. And that's what he was doing that day, you know. And so he's just kind of doing his thing. And so on, serving, doing his thing, burning incense. People are outside praying. But it's just part of the, of the duty. It was just, you know, he's just plodding along, doing what he was supposed to do. Well, then he got a surprise, okay. Unannounced, an angel of God appeared just to the right of the altar of incense. Zachariah was paralyzed in fear. But the angel reassured him, don't fear, Zachariah. Your prayer has been heard. Elizabeth, your wife, will bear a son to you. And listen to all these things that are going to happen. You're going to call him John. 
You're going to leap like a gazelle for joy, and not only you, but many will delight in his birth. He'll achieve great stature with God. He'll drink neither wine nor beer. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit from the moment he leaves his mother's womb. Wouldn't it be great to have a kid like that? Filled with the Spirit of God from, from his mother's womb. He will turn many sons and daughters of Israel back to their God. He will herald God's arrival in the style and the strength of Elijah. Soften the hearts of parents to children. Wouldn't it be great to be able to do that? See parents actually start to love their kids again? And kindle devout understanding among hardened skeptics. People, you know, who, you know, don't believe in God. People who don't believe that God does anything. They start to believe in God. He'll get the people ready for God. So listen to Zachariah's amazing response to this message. Zachariah said to the angel, do you expect me to believe this? <laughs> I'm an old man. And, you know, you got to see my wife. <laughs> she's an old woman. Believe me, she's old, you know. Now, to feel what Zachariah was feeling and why he would say something like that, just imagine that you and your spouse are in your 70s, okay? You're settling into semi-retirement. You've had your disappointments in life. You always wanted children, you know. But, you know, even now, you know, you're kind of settled into the quiet of your own little house, you know, where you're going to live out your days. People in their 20s and their 30s and maybe into their 40s, you know, they love adventure and change sometimes. But the thought of Change at this juncture of your life, like this kind of change. It's like we're not excited about that, okay? Like we're not excited about getting up, midnight feedings, you know. We're not excited about bottles. We're not excited about, you know, kids getting the flu and, and all this stuff. And this was a day, you know, when it was tough. Like there were no microwaves. There were no bottles. There were no washing machines. There were no pampers. I mean, this, so imagine thinking, yeah, we're in our 70s, but we're, you know, and, and all the other parents, you see, there was nobody to babysit the kids because all the other parents, their age, were already babysitting their grandchildren or their great-grandchildren. So they would be in this all alone. I mean, having a toddler in your, in your home is not for the faint of heart anyways, certainly not for old people. This is going to be a lonely journey. And you talk about chaos in the house, okay? And that's not all. We find out later on, John, uh, later nicknamed the Baptist, he said he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Now, you know anything about Elijah? Elijah was one energetic dude. He was high octane, you know. Prophets are people who always keep things stirred up. And here's what's fascinating. Their little boy, John the Baptist, would be the enemy of the establishment. Listen to what he said, you know, later on. So, you know, I mean, you can imagine having a little, you know, 10-year-old prophet or 15-year-old prophet at your table, but it, it actually got worse. So all of the priests, all of the religious establishment, these were all friends of Zacharias. Listen to what he said to them. When John realized that a lot of the Pharisees and Sadducees were showing up for a baptismal experience because it was becoming the popular thing to do, he exploded. Brood of snakes, what do you think you're doing slithering down here to the river? You think a little water in your snake skins is going to make any difference? It's your life that must change, not your skins. Well, how do you really feel about this, John? So imagine having that kid, raising him up and having him at your table. You talk about chaos at the table. He was walking chaos. So let's add to it. So Zechariah, because of his you know, less than enthusiastic response and didn't believe what the angel was saying, so he can't talk. So now he has to go home and face his wife, Elizabeth, who's going to actually get pregnant with this baby, in her, I'm guessing in her 70s, and then deliver this baby, and he can't tell her what he saw. 
probably wrote it down. I don't know what he did, but I'm telling you, this is, this is tough stuff. But sometimes God introduces chaos to bring peace. And that's what he was up to. Next phase of the story. So then the angel Gabriel, he gets ready for his next stop. Six months from this moment, about 70 miles away in Nazareth. And we have no idea when he showed up or anything, but it would appear that, um, it would appear that Mary was in a house by herself because there wasn't anybody else there to witness this and so on. She's about 14 years old, average age of girls that got married back then, anywhere between 13 and 15. We can assume 14 would be a safe number. So she's home alone, and this guy, this angel, this being of power who makes big, you know, strong men wet themselves, he shows up like while she's right there. Listen to what it says. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to the Galilean village of Nazareth to a virgin engaged to be married to a man descended from David. His name was Joseph, and the virgin's name, Mary. Upon entering, Gabriel greeted her. Listen to this. This is great. Good morning. You're beautiful with God's beauty, beautiful inside and out. God be with you. It's hard for me to imagine right, like, because I'm having a heart attack here on the floor. She was thoroughly shaken, wondering what was behind a greeting like that. But the angel assured her, Mary, you have nothing to fear. God has a surprise for you. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son and call his name Jesus. And he will be great. He'll be called the son of the highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will rule Jacob's house forever, no end ever to his kingdom. Mary said to the angel, but how? I've never slept with a man. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest hover over you. And therefore the child you bring to birth will be called Holy Son of God. And did you know that your cousin Elizabeth conceived a son? Old as she is, everyone called her barren. And here she is six months pregnant. And this is the important phrase in this. Nothing you see is impossible with God. Listen to the difference in her response from Zacharias. And Mary said, yes, I see it all now. I am the Lord's maid, ready to serve. Let it be with me just as you say. And then the angel left her. Now Luke, the author of this account, had interviewed a lot of people. He says at the beginning, like he had gone out, he had researched everything. And he interviewed people. I'm guessing he probably interviewed Mary. And so you have to understand that these words where she says thoroughly shaken are probably, you know, what she told him. Like, this guy showed up and scared me to death, and I realized that it was an angel. Now, just uh, kind of a something here you need to know. Many times when angels show up, you know, you, people say, oh, yeah, I had this experience. And he was a cute little guy, you know, he showed up and talked in my ear. You have to understand that angels, you know, usually scare people to death. And they lead us into the tunnel of chaos. And that's exactly what you see in these stories, these narratives. These angels came along and they had a message that I'm telling you would lead them right into chaos. And that's many times the way it works. So Mary's parents had planned out this marriage years before. To be engaged was literally almost to be married at that point. In fact, you had to break an engagement. You had to divorce the person. That is, her dad had promised her probably to another, the son of another family. So you can just imagine, you know, if you're married, you're seven or eight years old, you know, and your parents are walking through town and say, see that little guy over there? You're going to marry him someday. And you're thinking, ugh, 
you know, because the guy's got pimples and everything like that. It's like, don't worry, you know, the pimples, he'll lose the pimples and grow a beard and it'll all be good. Um, so Zachariah was kind of plodding along in his duties at the temple, and Mary is kind of plodding along in what she expected because her future was all planned out for her. She's going to marry Joseph and have a big wedding. It would probably last a week like they did back in the whole ceremony and, and party would last about a week like they did in small villages like that, you know. And so she would get married and they would have kids and then they would have grandkids and she would, you know, clean the house and she would cook and she would do all these things and so on. And then one day she'd die and that would be her life. What he told her was, very clear. See, this was, there was no misunderstanding here, you know. Like Mary wasn't sitting around thinking, you know, I wonder what it means to be the mother of the Messiah, being the son. This, this was all stuff that everybody in that culture knew was going to happen. It was the promised Messiah. But <laughs> I'm telling you, it sounds really exciting when it's hand, happening to somebody else, but when, it's very different when it's happening to you. And the reality begins to sink in. So imagine being a 14-year-old girl, and she's told that she's going to get pregnant, you know, and she's carrying the weight of that conversation with this angel and about what this is going to mean for her life. Thoroughly shaken, what that means spells out chaos. Your life is going to change forever. And some of those ways may not be ways that you would have chosen for yourself. And you're going to be pregnant before your wedding day. Now you have to understand as you probably do. In our culture, it's tough enough for that to happen. Back in that culture, that could be a death sentence. Because you see, the law allowed girls who got pregnant outside of marriage to be stoned. And sometimes their fiancé, you know, especially if it wasn't his, his child, you know, they were kind of at the, at the front of the thing throwing the first rock. How dare you do this to me? But what we find out is that Gabriel's description of Mary as being beautiful inside and out and honored by God was absolutely true. Even though I'm guessing probably nobody back then really understood it or saw it. Now, if God were trying to prevent chaos, he would have had Gabriel make about two or three dozen other stops or maybe you know, hover above you know, the whole village of Nazareth, about 100 feet above the ground, you know, say, listen, everybody, listen up here. Come on, come out of your doors and stuff. I've got an announcement to make. You've got this little girl here. She's going to be pregnant, but this is not her problem. She is, you know, she's a virgin. God did this. She's going to carry the Messiah, so you need to celebrate her. No, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. They didn't know her as the Virgin Mary. Because you see, back in that culture, you know, the only people who got pregnant and carried children weren't virgins. So Mary knew that this secret growing inside her from that moment on was a good secret, but nobody else did. And so the language makes it clear here that she immediately took off to be with Elizabeth. We don't know, you know, what happened. I don't know the backstory here, but I can imagine if she was a normal teenage girl and they're sitting around the table, imagine your daughter coming and saying, you know what, you know, I met an angel today and I'm, I'm pregnant now and I'm going to be carrying the Son of God. This is going to be the Messiah and he's going to save everybody. What would you think if you were a parent? First, you'd be stunned. Then you'd be angry because you felt like she's lying to you. And I could just imagine that there was a, a heated conversation around the family table that night, and everybody probably went to bed you know, either angry or in tears, or both. So she left, trying to get out of this. But I'm telling you, you know, listen to what happened. Mary didn't waste a minute. She got up and traveled to a town in Judah in the hill country, straight to Zachariah's house, and greeted Elizabeth. Listen to what happened. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby in her womb leaped. 
She was filled with the Holy Spirit and sang out exuberantly, you are so blessed among women and the babe in your womb also blessed. Can you imagine what that sounded like to Mary who was scared to death of what was going to happen to her reputation? Where you think of God setting this up and being behind us. Elizabeth was the one person in the world of that day who would understand what was going on because she was carrying a baby miraculously as well. Sometimes God introduces chaos to bring shalom, to make his plan work. And of course, the third piece in this narrative is Joseph. Um, Matthew is the one who records how all this uh, takes place. This is found in Matthew chapter 1 surrounding and how it hit Joseph. And I'm telling you, it gutted him. Listen to what it says. The birth of Jesus took place like this. Like this. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. So far, so good. Before they came to the marriage bed, Joseph discovered that she was pregnant. Do you imagine how that would happen? What that would make you feel like? It was the Holy Spirit, but he didn't know that. It says in the text here, Joseph, chagrined but noble, determined to take thing, care of things quietly so Mary would not be disgraced. It says something about him. He wasn't going to say, wasn't me, wasn't me. She's off messing around with some Roman guard or something like that, but it wasn't me. The word chagrined, I don't know, you see that, you know, and it's not a word that we use all that much. It means to be distressed. That is to be ground up on the inside, to be broken. And it also means to be humiliated. And he was both. He was both. What do you do when somebody that you've pledged yourself to, somebody that your parents have arranged the marriage, somebody has acted uncharacteristically and blown all of your plans out of the water? Like, how do you redo that? I'm guessing that Joseph didn't know anything about, you know, why Mary all of a sudden took off and made this trip to Elizabeth's. But when she came back three months pregnant, he knew. Now, we're not sure exactly what all happened here, but he's obviously ground up on the inside about what's happening. Back in that culture, guys basically stayed with their parents until they, you know, they didn't go out and get a condo or anything like that, until they had the money. Jesus uses the language. Remember, he says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. That's what husbands did when they, you know, when they got engaged and so on. And they didn't get, actually get married until they had the money to build an addition onto their mom and dad's house. So you can just imagine, you know, <laughs> Joseph saying to Mary, you're just going to love my mommy, you know. Well, anyways, that's what, that's what they did back in that culture. And I can only imagine the chaos around Joseph's family dinner table. Can you imagine these people, his parents, they're upset too, and they're angry, you know. And, and sometimes everybody's just sad and quiet for a little bit. And then people start blaming and accusing and pointing fingers and, and so on. You know how this works. And I'm guessing it was no different there. No one sleeps well. Well, Joseph didn't sleep well, and that was to his advantage. While he was trying to figure out a way out, he had a dream. And God's angel spoke in the dream, Joseph, son of David, don't hesitate to get married. This had to just pour oil on all this troubled water. Mary's pregnancy is spirit-conceived. God's Holy Spirit has made her pregnant, and she will bring a son to birth, and when she does, you, Joseph, will name him Jesus. God saves because he will save his people from their sins. And this will bring the prophet's embryonic servant to full term. 
Watch out for this. A virgin will get pregnant and bear a son, and they will name him Emmanuel. Hebrew for God is with us. And then Joseph woke up, and he did exactly what the angel commanded him in the dream. See, he had a choice. He had a choice. Because he knew that when he married her, he was entering into the tunnel of chaos with her. That nothing would ever be the same. His friends would never think the same of him. And his family would never think the same of him either. Joseph woke up. He did exactly what the angel, God's angel, commanded in the dream. He married Mary, but he did not consummate the marriage until she had the baby. And he named the baby Jesus. It's important to understand that God's peace is not usually this instant solution, you know, is happily ever after and everything works out fine. Everybody's good, you know, with this and so on. Like the shalom, you see, that the peace that he needed, he needed the peace to be able to move forward with Mary. But I'm telling you, he entered the tunnel of chaos right at that moment. And he would be the one, the only one who could walk with her through this difficult time where God was bringing his son to the world. And she had said when she found out what God wanted, I'm the Lord's servant. Like, I belong to you, God. I I will do whatever you ask me to do. And he had to have the same kind of conviction in his heart. Now, here's what you and I need to know. There are times in life when making the right choice, doing the right thing, doing what God is asking you to do is about to introduce you into some chaos that sometimes might feel unbearable. See, if Joseph wanted to spare his reputation, I mean, he could have done that. He could have just blamed it on Mary and went on his way, but he joined the scandal. And here's the takeaway on Joseph. There will be times in life when the path to peace, to being the person that God wants you to be, will take you away from some of the people that you love. You're like some of your friends will not understand. Sometimes your family members won't understand, and they'll bar you out. And the question that you have to ask in those moments is, will I do what I know is right rather than take the easy way out? See, here's what we know. Easy way out doesn't lead to peace. It never leads to peace. You're floating downstream at that point, and that doesn't work for anybody. Now, please understand, nobody told Joseph that he would be famous one day. You know, all these kids would be lining up, you know, to wear their dad's bathrobe, you know, and, and play his part. And then he would have cathedrals named after him. And that, you know, everybody, oh, everybody would know Joseph. No, he didn't know that. He just knew he was entering into a mess and that God was calling him to do it. And it took courage. It always takes courage to do what God wants you to do. Now, here's the unexpected, okay? What's fascinating about about Matthew's record of Jesus is that he not so subtly introduces the whole backstory to Jesus. And he actually starts out with these words. He talks about, you know, the like kind of the genealogy up to Joseph's dad. And it's like he highlights, like it's like he takes a, you know, like one of these fluorescent yellow highlighters to the passage. Oh, by the way, listen, listen to that. I think you'll pick up on it. Judah had Perez and Zerah. The mother was Tamar. Perez had Hezron, and Hezron had Aram, and Aram had Aminadab, and Aminadab had Nation, and Nation had Salmon, and Salmon had Boaz. His mother was Rahab, remember the prostitute? Boaz had Obed, and Ruth was his mother. Remember Ruth? She was from Moab. Nobody from that country was ever supposed to, you know, you're not supposed to marry them, and they weren't supposed to be part of the temple. Hello. Obed had Jesse, Jesse had David, and David became king. 
And David had Solomon. Uriah's wife was the mother. Remember that? Remember the scandal? Remember the mess? <laughs> you think, why are you doing this, Matthew? I mean, you're, you're trying to tell people about the Son of God being born, and you're reporting all this mess. So here's what you need to know. Okay, this is, I don't, I don't think this is the next one here, but let me just take it on, okay? Shalom does not take you into the comfort zone. Never takes you into the comfort zone, okay? So just remember that. And here's what Matthew was bringing out. Jesus had skeletons in his closet. The family tree had broken limbs on it. That's what he's basically saying. Now, Judah, you have to understand, was one of the sons of Jacob. This guy was a scoundrel. He was the one that came up with the plan, you know, to sell Joseph. Like, let's not kill him. Let's sell him as slaves. Let's make some money off this guy, you know. So his heart was only changed when he came, when he was confronted with what he had done. See, what had happened is that, you know, so his wife had died and so on. So he has, you know, Tamar. He's supposed to marry one of his sons to her, and she's angry about that, and he's doing the wrong thing. So she poses as a prostitute, and so he goes and has sex with her, okay? And she gets pregnant with twins. And before the whole family, she basically says, by the way, do you want to know who the father of the twins is? And she hands him his, his staff, okay? So just imagine some of the conversations around the kitchen table, you know. Well, how do you explain to your grandkids, you know, that you're also their dad, you know. And, you know, they all bought a trailer down in Arkansas and moved there. So that, that's, you know, kind of their, you know, that was their thing. I mean, it's embarrassing. It's awkward, Okay. In the account of Joshua leading the Israelites into the land that God had promised them, there's this featured story about this pagan prostitute by the name of Rahab, and she hides these guys and so on, keeps them from the authorities there, and they promise her that they'll spare her life and spare her family. So she actually marries one of the Israelites, and it turns out to be, she turns out to be David's great-grandmother. Oh, David, remember your great-grandmother, the prostitute, the temple prostitute there in Jericho? Interesting. Then there's Ruth. Ruth was from Moab. I don't know if you know the history of this country, but Moab was conceived by an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. Ooh, okay? The Moabites were so spiritually off the charts that the, the law of God basically said that anybody who is descended from them, they can't have anything to do with the temple. Like, they can never be forgiven. They can't go into the temple. They can't be part of anything that goes on there. And yet David is the one... This was his grandmother, and he's the one that has the vision for the temple. And then there's David himself, man after God's own heart, man, oh, man. And he was completely obedient to everything that God had asked him to do. Well, then, of course, there was, there was the thing with Bathsheba, you know. Bathsheba his, one of, was one of his close friend's wives, Uriah the Hittite. He was one of David's mighty men. So anyways, he waits until Uriah is off at battle, where he actually should have been at that point. And then he, you know, he sees her. He apparently had seen her for some time. He wanted her. He sent for her. He had sex with her, and she got pregnant. And then he killed his friend to try and hide the whole mess. Can you imagine sitting around the table, you know, dinner table there, and David's there, and Bathsheba's there, you know, and, and one of his other sons, half, you know, half-brothers of, of Solomon pipes up and says, so, Dad, it's nice that you have Bathsheba here today, you know. 
Oh, she was the one that you, you had an affair with. Oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And here's Solomon, your little son, with, you know, that you had with her. Messy stuff. Chaos at the table. Now, you ever wondered why Matthew is bringing all this stuff out? We think about Matthew for a little bit. Matthew, his name means gift from God, and I can guarantee you that that's not how his parents saw him, and I'll tell you why. Because Jesus was, one day he was teaching, going someplace, and he sees Matthew at his tax collecting table, okay? And he says to Matthew, he says, well, why don't you come and follow me, and, and you know, instead of following Rome, and stop taking taxes. Now, you know, back then, a tax collector, it was a scummy job, and it wasn't well, I guess it was kind of like, you know, collecting taxes for Revenue Canada and for the IRS and so that, that's a little bit scummy too, but hey, we're, we're just going to let that go. Matthew's profession would be a little bit more like Eddie the Knife, you know, who collects taxes for the, who collects debts for the mafia. Because you see, back then, you know, the way this worked is he bought this position, he bought this job, and what that meant was he not only collected the taxes, he could collect whatever he wanted to on top of it. And, and back then, like, if you didn't pay your taxes, they didn't send you a letter or make a phone call and so on. They sent soldiers. He had the Roman army backing him up. But the problem is, you see, that Matthew had to trade in everything to do this job. He traded his heritage as a Jewish person. He traded his family for it. He traded his God for it. Like, everything, like, he traded everything to make money. And I think that Matthew was saying, it doesn't make any difference what your past is. God accepts us just as we are. It doesn't make any difference what anybody else says about you because God is at work everywhere using whoever will come, even me. You begin to look into some of this. Judah, which you find out it was humiliated in front of his entire family, and you find out that his heart was changed in that moment to the point where he laid his life on the line to reconcile his dad with Joseph someone that he had traded into slavery. He became the leading brother of the family. He became the prince among the brothers, tribe of Judah. Remember, they called Jesus the Lion of Judah. Rahab is honored. She's put in like the hall of fame in the book of Hebrews as one of the heroes of the faith because she turned from prostitution, the only thing that she ever had ever known from probably her early teens, and she followed the God of Israel, hero of the faith. Ruth, as you now know, has an entire book written about her integrity as a woman of God. Her faithfulness to Naomi, her mother-in-law, by the way, was just stellar. You know, I mean, they still use the vows that she said to her, to Naomi, in wedding ceremonies. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Despite his suspicious beginning, Solomon went on to be one of the greatest kings of Israel and the wisest kings. And he's known for Proverbs like this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Sometimes God introduces a little bit of chaos to bring shalom. See, the lesson here is that God can work through anyone. God can work everywhere. He is determined to bring all things together. He's determined to heal all the broken pieces of this world. He's determined to bring relationships together, to bring families together, to, break, to make love and kindness and goodness and healing a regular part of everybody's life every day, all the time. 
That's what shalom is. His son Jesus came into this world as a squalling, vulnerable little baby born to a young woman who, when asked, had the guts and the courage to say, may it be to me as you have said, because I'm your servant. From what we understand, the scent of scandal hung over Jesus and his family from that time on. To make all this worse, even Jesus' own brothers didn't believe that he was anything, you know, until, until after his resurrection. Can you imagine some of the conversations around that supper table, you know? Like they'd point at Jesus and, and say to Joseph, so, like, are you the father of Jesus or was it somebody else? And if somebody else is the dad here, you know, why is he the big deal in our family? And by the way, have you heard him talk? Like, you know, are you ever going to challenge him on this, on this Messiah complex that he has? I mean, really? They didn't believe in him. In fact, at one point, they actually talked Jesus' mother when he was teaching into going and trying to haul him off into that, version, that culture's version of a mental hospital. And yet, when they did follow, man, oh man, you have James who wrote the book of James. And you have Jude, brothers of Jesus. You know what? I'm always looking for visuals, right? So you don't mind if I... I do the visual thing right with you, okay? Like this looks like a cake pan, but we're going to pretend that it's a pan that you would use panning for gold. And I actually looked this up on Google to figure out how they did it and so on. So uh, the way they worked this, of course, back in, was it, 1898, I think it was, um, the Yukon um, in Klondike, Yukon, you know, 100,000 prospectors went up there and they're all buying one of these little pans. So if you wanted to make a lot of money, you didn't pan for gold, you sold the pans, right? So anyway, so they're all going up there and they're all panning for gold. And the way this works is, of course, you know, you, you're in probably up to your angles in the water and you scoop up, you know, a bunch of gravel and sand and water and stuff like this and you begin to shake it like this, you know, and then eventually and slosh it and the water sloshes over the side and the sand and, and stuff sloshes over the side and eventually... And I saw this guy do this, okay? I'm sure it was fake, but anyways, he, he said, when you do this and you tap the pan, he said, what happens is the gold lines up in the edge there and it's kind of a gold smile, kind of like Eddie the Knife would have, right? So that's the way apparently it works. And I thought about that. And I thought about how, you know, God maybe is panning for gold. And sometimes he has to shake us up. Sometimes he has to shake up things in this world to get, you know, the gold to where it's supposed to be so it can actually be seen. See, when you're panning for gold, it's not like, you know, you think, oh my, look, I found a gold nugget. You know, that doesn't happen ever, okay? You find these little tiny pieces of gold, and it's this process of just going through all this stuff and, and sifting it and shaking it and tapping the side. And I think that's the way God works in our lives. Now, I think... And I'm just going to kind of put myself out there. Uh, I think, I don't think God caused COVID, not for a minute do I believe that, because he doesn't cause evil. But I think that his plan is to shake things up. Because you see, as you know, if you watch the news, if you watch what goes on before COVID, man, everybody's like, bring the gold, man, bring the money. Money is where it's at. Or power. Or job. Or science. Science has all the answers for everything. Or government. Or something else. 
And I'm telling you, what this has done, it's shaken the whole world. And I'm hoping and praying that what it has done is pulled the cover off of some of these other things that people trust in. You see, the biggest, the biggest betrayal in the world is to lay your soul on the line for something that can't save you. It can't really even help you. All it can do is complicate your life. And God is determined to bring shalom to this world. God wants to bring shalom. He wants to bring his peace and his grace and his kindness and his forgiveness. Every heart who will have him, even people who don't hardly know anything about him, because he'll do that. That's clear in this story with Rahab. She didn't know anything about him. That's clear with Ruth. She didn't know anything about him. God is at work in the mess in which we find ourselves. See, the tragedy would be if people go through their lives thinking that money is going to solve their problems or their job is going to satisfy their soul and fill them up so that when they die at 90 with a smile on their face, they would say, you know, like bring in my records. I just am so proud of my work because that never happens. It's important for us to know what's real. And sometimes God has to tap the side. We begin to find out what is real, what lasts, and what doesn't. It's important to find that out before you die. And here's the deal. You see, God has this plan that he is working. That's what's going on in this story. It's his plan. He's working. His son left the highest place and ends up, you know, down in this filthy feeding trough so that we could have life. It's this amazing story. And I don't know where the chaos is in your life. I don't know where the chaos is around your table or in your home this Christmas. I know it's uncomfortable, and sometimes it's heartbreaking. But I do know this, that God introduced chaos into the Christmas story to save the world and to save us. My prayer this morning, or whenever you're listening to this video, is that just like Joseph just like Mary did, you will have the courage to step into the chaos, step into the tunnel of chaos and say, I'm, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to follow God no matter where it takes me, no matter what it costs me. Because it always leads to shalom. Let's pray. I want to thank you, God, that you have intervened in this world Intervention is always messy when it comes to people's lives and, and people confront somebody who's addicted or alcoholic or whatever it is that they're, they're working with and they confront them and, they, and, and there's this battle, battle that goes on in the family until they finally say, I'm, I just don't want to live like this. I pray that that would be our conviction down at the core of our lives, that we just don't want to live without you and the peace that you can give to our lives. Give us the courage to choose chaos when it's the right thing to do so that you can introduce the peace that we long for. Amen.